Welcome to The Chapel Online. At The Chapel, we're about helping people meet, know, and follow Jesus on the campus, in the city, and around the world. Well, like Dave, I also want to say welcome to The Chapel. And if we've not met, my name is Steve Elworth. I'm the sending director here. Really excited to be with you. And if I haven't gotten a chance to meet you, really looking forward to meeting you. If you were with us last week, and I know some of you might not have made it because of the monsoon, uh, you got to hear Kevin close out our series. Kevin's our lead pastor, and he was out here closing out the series that took us through the month of January, all about the gospel as we just soaked in the truths and the message of Jesus. He also celebrated what God has been doing over the last couple years, and he also lets you know a little bit of what is coming, uh, specifically in the transition with Andrew Bates and the teaching and shepherding pastor here at the Segan location. Last week, he invited you to pray with us. Over the month of February, we want to invite you to pray with our staff and with our elders as we seek God over the timing and discernment over what is next, specifically for, uh, for that position. I'm going to be writing an email every Wednesday that guides us as we pray through that. So if you're not on that email, I want to invite you to sign up. Just go to our website, thechapelbr.com slash prayer, and you'll be getting those and you can, you can pray with us. And in the meantime, I am going to be here with you uh, week in and week out teaching from this platform, but not just with you on this stage, but with you through this transition. I know there are some of you that I've not gotten a chance to meet, and I'm really looking forward to meeting you and hearing your stories and getting to know your kids and walking with you through this transition. And I want you to know a a couple of things with confidence as we move forward. And the first is that we are with you through this transition. And by we, I mean myself, our staff, and our elders. We want to know you, we want to hear you, we want to see you, we want to pray with you and for you and know that we have been doing that. We're trusting God with what is next, but also know that we're not planning on missing a beat. God has given us a very clear vision for the chapel and we are going to continue to pull together towards that mission. And personally, I am really looking forward to being with you, getting to bring the word, getting to teach, but also just really being with you through these transitions. And I want to invite you uh, over the next months as you're praying for this transition, I want to invite you to pray for me as well. Uh, As Paul shared with the church in Ephesus, uh, this is what I would ask that uh, that you would pray for me. He says this, Pray also for me that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I may fearlessly make known the mystery of the gospel for which I'm an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. And though I'm not in chains, uh, as we get to do this together, uh, I want to ask as I pray and as we pray for you and for this transition that you pray for me and you pray for us in this transition as well. So pray with me as we, uh, I want to pray for you as we make our way through this transition and also ask God to bless our time in the word today. So Father, we are so grateful for Jesus and we're grateful that you have given this church and our leaders a vision that has not changed and will continue to move 
through your power and provision. We pray that you would give our elders and our leaders wisdom and discernment over what is next for specific positions, but that we would not miss a beat, but that you would let us continue to move forward as a church into this mission that you've given us. And God, as we lean into the book of Romans, I pray that the truths that you revealed to Paul would change our lives. I pray that you would impact our hearts and the core of who we are through these truths. And God, I pray that it would be your words that are spoken from this platform. It would be your words that are heard because it really doesn't matter what I have to say if it's not empowered by your spirit. So if there's anything I've planned to say that's not of you, would you take it out of my mind? And if there's anything that you want to say that maybe I've not thought of, would you come and speak? Because we want to hear from you and be transformed. In Jesus' name, amen. So like Dave said, we are starting in the book of Romans, and we're going to specifically be in Romans chapter 5 through 8. We're not going to look at the whole book, but over the course of the Chapel Bible reading plan, you will be reading some of, uh, some of the rest of these chapters. And we are really excited. This is going to be the series that takes us all the way through spring and, th- and into the summer. Uh, so we're excited to dive into some of this. So a few points of introduction. Why this series? And the words that have kind of come to mind as I've thought about that is as a church, really maybe as a culture, but specifically as a church, we need a worldview check. And what do I mean by that? Worldview is the core beliefs that make up who we are. They're not the things just that we do or that we might believe to be true, but they're the things deep inside of us that drive all of our behavior. And as the world continues to change and feed us information at all hours of the day through lots of different means, our worldview is being chipped away at. And the temptation is that the world around us begins to disciple, gets to craft our worldview. And I think we need a worldview check. So maybe you've seen this before, but this is what's known as the culture onion. This is what one of the things that we use to train some of our missionaries who are going around the world long term and even those on short term because the reality is culture is layered like an onion. Generally, cultures experience that, but every single person also has their own onion. And the way this works is kind of on the outside, what is is behavior. This is what is observable. This is what is done. Everybody can see what behavior is looks like. But underneath that is values. Values represent what is good. What do we think of as good? But beneath that, we have beliefs, which represent what is true. But even below that, we see worldview. And worldview represents what is real. Now, the, an example to think through this is maybe I walk up to you and you're, you're at a coffee shop or something and you are reading the Bible. That's a behavior, right? I can observe you reading the Bible, but I don't necessarily know why you're reading the Bible or what is driving you to do that. So in order to find out, I might ask why several times. Well, why, why are you reading the Bible? You might give an answer. Well, well why? 
why. And if I keep pressing on why, eventually I'm going to get to a place where you don't have an answer. And your answer will be, well, that's just kind of, that's how it is. That's just how I feel. I've not really ever thought about why. Once I get to that point, I've found your worldview. Now, if I see you reading the Bible and I ask why several times, one of the answers that I might get is, you know what? I'm reading the Bible because I don't know if I am fully secure in God's love for me. And deep down, I think that if I read the Bible, God will love me more. That would be a worldview that is revealed as not being secure in the love of God and not really knowing that you are his because of what Jesus has done. For someone else, I might ask why you're reading the Bible and keep asking why. And I might find somebody that says, you know what? Jesus has died for me. I am completely secure. And so I want to read the word that he has given so that I can know what that means for my life. Both people are reading the Bible. Reading the Bible is a very good thing. But both of those people are coming at it from a very different ultimate reason. And I think what we need is a reality check, a worldview check. Because as a church, I often wonder, do we actually believe at the core of who we are that because of what Jesus has done, we are secure? We are loved. That the God of the universe has welcomed us in and accepted us in such a way that that drives our behavior rather than a behavior of, man, I feel like I need to do things for him in order to earn his love. I think we need a worldview check. Is our expectation when we wake up in the morning that we are fully secure in who we are in Christ? Or is what is real for us, man, I'm going to wake up in the morning and everything's going to work the way that it's supposed to. My electricity is going to turn on, my car is going to start, I'm going to get a paycheck, and I'll do the religious activities that are throughout my day. What is real when it comes to the core of who you are? The reason we're jumping into Romans chapter 5 through 8 is Paul paints a picture of reality. He gives us a picture of what are the things that Jesus' death and resurrection have actually purchased for us and how does that inform the way that we live. And if I were being honest, if I were to look at my own worldview and how it drives my behavior on a day-to-day basis, I can't always say that I am operating out of the truths that Jesus' death and resurrection have secured for me. Reading the Bible going to church, giving money, being a part of a community group, serving on a Sunday morning. These are all really, really good things. But ultimately, those are behaviors. And we are not after behavior modification. We're after life transformation. And the reality is transformation happens at the worldview level. Transformation happens at our core. And the reason we want to spend this time going into Romans is because What Jesus has purchased for us is all we need to change our worldview and live out of. Now, the whole book of Romans is incredibly rich 
incredibly dense, incredibly transformational. I wish we had time to go through all of it, and maybe we will someday soon. But the reason we picked chapter 5 through 8 is because those give us a picture of the results of what Paul calls justification. Chapters 1 through 4 give the need for justification and the means of justification, but chapter 5 through 8 gives us the fruits. It gives us the results, and that's what we want to spend time walking through. Now, justification is a $10 Bible word that basically just means to be declared right. To be declared righteous. Paul spent one through four laying out the reality that all have sinned, and therefore all have fallen short of the glory of God, that we cannot reach him on our own. And because of that, God's wrath and anger, some things that we don't often like talking about in the church, his wrath and anger were reserved for all of us because we had fallen short of the glory of God. But God, in his love, saw our mess, saw our rebellion, sent his son to this planet to die the death that we deserved, and rose from the dead three days later to give us life. And on his basis, we are justified. When God looks at you after you've given your life to Jesus, he looks at you and sees all of your sin, all of your mess, all of your rebellion. And then he looks beside you and he sees Jesus standing with you. And he declares that because of Jesus, because you are with him, you are righteous. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of everything that Jesus has done. Justification means you are assigned a perfect record. Not because of what you have done, but because Jesus has a perfect record and died in your place. Justification is a one-time act. It doesn't have to happen over and over again. If you have been justified because you've given your life to Jesus, then you are declared righteous. And then Paul jumps into chapter 5 to show us what does that actually mean? What does it mean for us? What are the things that we can live in after we've been justified? So I'm going to read chapter 5, 1 through 11 for us, and then I'm going to unpack as much as I can. I wish I had four hours. I could do a sermon on every single one of these verses because it is so rich, but we will do what we can with the time that we have. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Romans 5, starting in verse 1, and I'm going to read through verse 11 in the NIV. It says this, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, and not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit has been given to us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Man, that's rich. And right from the very beginning, Paul starts off with the all-important therefore, which is if you're reading the Bible, it is an important word to pay attention to. And what he's saying is based on everything we've just read in chapter 1 through 4, what then is the result? And he gives us three things that are the immediate result of being justified. We have peace with God, we have access to his grace, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And if over this whole series, nothing else other than those three things creep into your worldview, man, it would change so much. It would change so much. So the first is peace with God. Why is peace with God so important? Well, when we look back on our relationship with God before Jesus, we have to recognize that we were functionally at war with God. We don't talk about that a lot of time. We like talking about the post-justification truths of our standing with God, but what this verse does is it points us back to think about what it was like when we were at war with God. We wanted to live for ourselves. We wanted to make a name for ourselves. We wanted to do the things that feel good to us. Functionally, the way that we lived, and in reality, the only way we could have lived is spitting in the face of God. We had declared war. And God had every right to destroy us. Like a pot that took on life and tried to attack a potter. We were no longer doing what we were created to do, to live in perfect fellowship with God, worshiping him forever. And God had the right to crush us. But he chose instead to crush Jesus in your place. Jesus willingly stepped in because of God's love for you to take your place. Think about that for a minute. So often we like to think about the warm, fuzzy feelings that we get in a relationship with God, and those are true, and we're going to get there. But Paul says, hey, for a minute, I want you to remember. I want you to remember what it was like to be at war with God and to know deep down in your core that Jesus came to die in your place. Man, if that sinks in, if we could live out of that, that would change so much. But there's more. 
It's not just that we have moved from wrath to peace and now we get to move on with our life, but because we've been justified, we've been invited in. We've been invited into the throne room. And Paul says, don't just look back on what it was like before, but now look up. Look up to your now father who welcomes you to have access to his grace, to have access to favor with him. And because we have peace relationally and grace functionally, it allows us to rejoice in what's coming. Now, I want to spend the rest of our time tracking a theme through this text of rejoicing. Now, we can't see it in the English uh, translation that we have here in the NIV, but three times Paul says, because of what God has done, we rejoice. Twice in the English translation we have here, it says boast, and once it says glory, but it's all the same word in the original language, and it all has this underpinnings of rejoice. So when we see boast and when we see glory here, it's saying we should rejoice. And the first time it says this is right here in verse 2. It says that a life, basically a life of peace with God rejoices in hope. We rejoice in hope. And this type of hope is not a, oh, I wish that what we're talking about is true. This hope is a future hope. It's a hope of heaven. It's a hope of eternity. It's a hope in the future promises of God being fulfilled. One day there will be no more tears. There will be no more mourning. There will be no more pain. There will be no more death. And though we don't experience that currently, Paul says, because of what Jesus has done, that is to be the object of your rejoicing. That is where we are supposed to rejoice. And church, that takes a worldview shift. Because that is not something that is going to naturally happen within us. We all know our hearts and we long for the next pleasure. We long for the next thing. We long for the next luxury. And the world is constantly screaming at us to put our hope in the next thing that will give us some sort of short-term relief. But ultimately, joy will never be found in those things. That hope in these earthly pleasures will always, always crumble. And maybe even we know we're supposed to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but there are so many bright and shiny things that just draw our hearts and draw our hope away. But God loves us way too much to let us wander after those things. He loves us way too much to let us wander away from his grace. And so... As we track Paul's logic, he gives us something else to rejoice in. And if you and I were writing Romans, I don't know if we would go to where Paul goes, but, but hear him out. He says, a life with peace with God rejoices in tribulation. The text says suffering. 
but it's better translated as tribulation. The type of suffering that it's talking about here in context is talking more about persecution. And Paul says we should rejoice in those things. How do you feel about that? Anybody ready to sign up for that one? And this is why Romans 5 is so sweet if it can really get a hold of our core and of our worldview. Many of us don't suffer the type of persecution and tribulation for our faith. I'll add yet to that sentence. Most of what Paul is talking about here is talking about those things, but I don't want to discount the sufferings that each of you are carrying even as you come into this room. Because life continues to be hard after we've been justified. And suffering of various kinds clothes us as we walk the path post-justification. Many of you are experiencing health challenges, family challenges, mental health challenges, marriage challenges as you navigate this crazy world. And, and though I don't think in context Paul is specifically talking about those, I think what he has to say applies to those things as well. And Paul has the audacity to say that what you are to do is rejoice in your sufferings. What does that even mean? <laughs> And how can we begin moving towards that as we change our worldview? Well, a couple of things. I don't think Paul's a masochist. I don't think he's saying, hey, now that you've been justified, why don't you start enjoying your sufferings? I don't think that's what he's saying. I also don't think what he's trying to say is, well, you have to go through sufferings to get to glory. That's why you should rejoice in them. I don't even think he's saying that. I think all he's trying to do is paint a picture of reality here. He's saying if what we are to rejoice in, which he just established, is the hope of the glory of God, if it's future promises being fulfilled, if that's where we're supposed to rejoice, and if, as he is explaining, that suffering produces that hope, then the only logical conclusion is to rejoice in our sufferings. So let's track what he, what he said, right? Suffering produces Endurance in verses 3 and 4. How do you endure suffering? You suffer. Because suffering produces the endurance that we need to get through suffering. If you've been through a season of suffering, you've probably experienced this. People may look at you and be like, man, how are you staying joyful? How are you continuing to go through life with what you're going through? I could never do that. And so often we want to be like, oh, no, you totally could. It's fine. God is good. And, but the reality is they can't go through what you're going through. Because through your suffering, God's producing endurance. And that endurance produces character, the character of one who has been tested through fire and comes out the other side still loving Jesus. And that character then produces hope. In God's economy, the way that the hope of the glory of God is produced is through suffering. Now, that's the logical argument. But let me address that as a pastor for a moment. 
Many of you know some of the health challenges that my wife and I have gone through over the last several years. I would imagine it will come out in some of the analogies over the next several weeks, so maybe you'll, uh, maybe you'll get to learn a little bit more about that. Uh, but we had some long seasons of suffering, and if you were to come up to me and be like, man, Steve, I just read Romans 5. You should be so excited that you're suffering. Right? Like, just imagine all of the things that it's going to produce in you. If you said that to me, I would be tempted to punch you in the face. I don't think what Paul is trying to do here is give us comfort. I don't think what he's trying to do here is give us verses to read over those who are in the reality of suffering. This is not supposed to be what I like to call spiritual air freshener. Right? I think sometimes when people are suffering or when we're suffering, we don't really know what to do. So we've got some good phrases, right? Where it's like, just let go and let God. I'm going to make, I'm going to make your situation smell a little bit better. We're not really good at this as a culture of comforting people. As a side note, I think the reason for that is because we think that suffering should not happen in our American worldview, which is why we need a worldview check. I don't think what Paul is trying to do here is comfort with these words. I do think he's just trying to paint a picture of reality. He's just saying, as we follow Jesus, this is what's going to happen. And so he lays out over the next several verses, why? What does that actually look like? And that's why in verse 5 we read this. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who's been given us. He's saying, if we're tracking his argument, that it only makes sense to rejoice in suffering because it's producing hope, and that hope won't be put to shame. So it begs the question, what does it mean for hope to be put to shame? Or, maybe a better question, how can hope be put to shame? I can think of two reasons. The first way is, you say you hope in the glory of God, but you really don't. At the worldview level, you're still hoping in other things. You go through religious activities and you do the things that you think you're supposed to do, but at the end of the day, your hope is in other things. And suffering purifies that really quickly. That's why Paul just went through that and said we should rejoice in our sufferings because it pries our hope off of things that won't satisfy but if your hope is not functionally in Jesus at your worldview level, suffering is going to drive you away. It's going to drive you to comforts. And that's one way that hope could be put to shame. The second way is you really do hope in God, but it ends up not being real. At the end of the day, it ends up not actually carrying you through. And maybe you wrestled with that. Is this really true? Paul's pretty confident, right? He's saying you should rejoice in it. I mean, it's, it's in the future. You haven't seen it yet, but I am so confident that I'm going to tell you you should rejoice in those things. But maybe it begs the question for you. How do I know? How do I know that what Paul is laying out is actually true? And Paul spends the rest of the, our verses today trying to lay that out for us. And he gives us three ways to look at it. 
Now, as we go through Romans, it is a very logical argument, right? So it's kind of having to follow it from beginning to end. So I'm going to do the best I can with my words to help us track that and find the thread that goes through it. But as he continues, he says there's really three ways that you can know. He, he lays out how we can know experientially how we can know historically, and how we can know logically. And that's why verse 5 talks about how God pours his love into our hearts. Pastor John Piper said this, God pouring his love into our hearts is not the same as God proving his love to our minds. What Paul is saying is that there is an experience in the inner person that convinces us that this is real. That might be hard for some of you. Some churches will lean really heavily on experience and feeling. Some churches will lean really heavily on truth and, and the mind. And sometimes they can be at opposition to each other. What Paul is saying is both are incomplete. He is saying that one of the ways that we can know is through the love of God poured into our hearts. So what does that mean? I don't think it's a feeling of like new age ecstasy or some form of electricity, right? I think some of us, if we're going to like feel God, we feel like we should like have a jolt and, you know, just kind of feel that way. And maybe that can happen to some people, but I don't think that's what Paul's talking about here. I think what Paul is doing is trying to give us language and expectation for the things that God is already doing because he is constantly pouring his love into your hearts, we just don't always recognize it. For the prayers that you have prayed that God has answered, God is pouring his love into your heart. Through the love that wells up within you towards someone else that you know didn't come from you, God is pouring his love into your heart. For the sins that we used to love but now bring conviction, God is pouring his love into your heart. For the encouraging word that you have for somebody that has insight that was impactful for them and you have no idea where it came from, God is pouring his love into your hearts. There are so many different things that God does to try to show us who he is. And my hope for you is you don't have to feel like you have to go after some tingly feeling to feel God, but that you begin to recognize how God is pouring out his love into your heart and that it drives you to rejoice. But it's not just through experience. It's also through what God has done historically. And that's why he continues in verse 6. He says, you see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, I bet you just have some warm, fuzzy feelings over the ways that Paul just described us, right? Powerless, ungodly, sinners. What Paul is saying here is it makes no sense that Jesus would die for us. He's like, I mean, people wouldn't even die for someone who follows all the rules. Maybe someone will die for the people that they really like, but God demonstrates his love that while we were his enemies, Christ died for us. 
He's saying that happened at the proper time, right when we needed it to happen. When the doubts creep up, and when you question whether or not you're feeling God's love, look at the cross. Look at the cross. All of God's love on display as he died for us. But for some of us, and maybe some of Paul's readers, that's still not enough. It's still not enough. We still wonder, will God actually come through? Will God actually save us in the end? So Paul kind of digs down into the very bottom of his communication technique bag, and he's like, I'm going to give you a couple of logical arguments too because I want this to drive home. And in verse 9, he says this, Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? So for those of us that need a little bit more, he gives us a couple of logical arguments. And for the nerds in the room, these are arguments that are called from the greater to the lesser. He's saying if God has already executed the most costly act that he could do, in the death of his perfect son, then it makes no logical sense for him not to do the easier act of saving us. If he already did the hardest, most costly thing, then it's illogical to think that he won't finish what he started. So he says that in two different ways. He says if we've been justified, which he has established that we have, how much more will we be saved from his wrath? If, if I've already killed my son for you, why would I not save you? And as a side note, as we keep going, some people, I think, struggle answering the question, what am I actually saved from? Why do we, why do we use that language? And so often we'll say, well, God saved me from my sin. And of course that's true, but what we see in Paul is it's more. We're not just saved from our sin. When you are justified, you are saved from the wrath and anger of God that your sin earned. And that is really hard sometimes to internalize. And in a culture that says you are right because of what is inside of you, it's really hard to believe that what is actually inside of us has earned the wrath of God. Which is why having peace with God is so significant. It's what Jesus' death has accomplished. So that was the first. The second, he says, if Jesus died for us while we were God's enemies— why would we possibly think that he's not going to save us now that we're his friends? It makes no sense for a son that has watched their father work their butt off, provide a house, provide clothing, provide love, provide meals every single day to then one day get insecure that his dad is going to provide him dinner. It's illogical. If the costly acts have already been done, Paul's saying, force our minds to consider that it doesn't even make sense. And man, it's obvious when he lays it out like that, 
right, when we look at these things. But as we'll see through the rest of Romans, this is hard. And we still have sin, raging war in our flesh. Life continues to be hard after we've been justified. And so what do we do? As we track his logical argument, what do we do? We rejoice. We boast in what is all satisfying and true. And that's why Paul, again, in verse 11 says, not only is this so, but we also boast, rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So through it all, we rejoice. We rejoice in the promises of God. We rejoice in the hope of glory. We rejoice in our suffering. And ultimately, a life at peace with God rejoices that there is also reconciliation, that all of this has actually brought us back into his family. The battle is won through rejoicing. The weapon that we have been given to fight the doubts, to fight the temptations to run, to fight the temptation to put our hope anywhere else. The battle is won as we rejoice in what is true. But that will forever be difficult. And church, that's why we need a worldview transformation. It's so easy to say, hey, you're struggling. You just need to read the Bible more. You just need to come to church more consistently. You just need to try serving. You just need to do, 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 do. But if your worldview has not been changed, if God has not breathed his life in so that you know that because of what Jesus has done, you're secure, then that is just air freshener. And if we can believe, church, at the core of who we are, that what Jesus has purchased has made us secure, has poured his love into you, has given you everything that you need, and will ultimately finish what he started, that changes the game. And if you're here and you're struggling with that this morning, what do you do? And I think what Paul would have us do is look historically at the, at the cross and rejoice in what God has purchased in bringing peace, bringing you into a relationship of peace with him and constantly ask him to keep pouring his love into your heart and to give you eyes to recognize when he does so. And together, let us rejoice. And in just a minute, we're going to do that together through communion. But let me pray for us as we get ready to approach the table that God would drive these points into our hearts. So, Father, we are so grateful for Jesus. We are so grateful for the things that you have done. We are so grateful that you paid the penalty, that you paid the death that we deserved. But God, no matter how hard we try, much of our days and much of our thoughts are elsewhere. 
we need your spirit to apply these truths to our heart that we would be transformed. So God, for me, I pray from my heart that you would allow me to believe. For those in this room, God, would you allow us to believe? And even over these next moments, as we celebrate communion together and as we worship together, would you make these real in our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for joining us. To find out more about the chapel, visit thechapelbr.com.